Hello and welcome to this teaching, Building Generationally Kingdom Management Part 1, based on timeless universal principles. We're continuing our discussion of this topic. We've got six sessions. We are in session five tonight. The first session was Foundations to Rule. Second session was Recognize Enduring Purpose. Third session, and understand that C4 people are the building blocks. Fourth session was Lead by Serving. And tonight we will discuss Engage in Generational Transfer. And next month, session six, we'll do Build Multi-Generational Organizations to Rule. Largely that session will be tips, things that uh, you should consider as you're pondering how to do generational transfer in your organization. Tonight, though, we want to focus in on engage in generational transfer, which uh, you can see from the color of the letters uh, is the fourth letter in the word rule. Uh, we're using the word rule as an acronym for uh, what we're talking about in this material, learning to rule well, which is what we are put here to do. We're God's ruling agents in his universe. So the first and foremost mandate for mankind is to be his ruling agents, to function that way. And in a fallen state, we, we did not do that well. And that was illustrated in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling those who are the people of God. And they're, they're, they show the capacity to be able to rule at a level that's never before been seen, seen prior to the, the coming of Christ. So this is a new period, a new age. We don't know how long it will last but it will last as long as the Holy Spirit wishes, and um, then the end will come. But in the meantime, we are here to rule and to serve God by, being, by serving as the ruling agents. What I wanna do is start first with some statistics that uh, I think help us contextualize our discussion. Uh, I wanna start at the bottom of this list. Uh, the first statistic is leaders who believe succession plan is important. Uh, this data comes from a variety of sources, all of which are compiled in this uh, web page that I've got listed at the bottom of the page. And so generally what this is saying is leaders, organizational leaders of all types, and this is um, small, small, medium, and large companies, as well as uh, local churches, any kind of organization, leaders generally believe planning is important. You can see Almost 90% of the leaders would agree with that. Next one up is family business owners who wish to keep the business in the family. That's about 70%. You might be a little surprised there. You might have thought that would be as high, if not higher than the first one, but it's still very high. A large portion of the owners of small family businesses, largely they're not all small, but many of them are, uh, want to pass on the business to someone in the family. And then the next one is leaders who believe they plan well. This was quite revealing because very few leaders believe the planning is very done well. It is uh, it's challenging. Uh, this is a difficult process to plan for succession, generational transfer. The next one, organizations that have a formal succession planning process. That is, they have written, written it out, they've thought it through, organized it, and are actually seeking to implement it. Uh, you can see it's a very small percent. Uh, fewer than 40% of organizations have a formal plan. The next one, boards that are satisfied with the organization's succession plan. This is quite interesting because you can see uh, very few of the boards are satisfied. Of course, that you've got to remember that not many of them have a formal plan, less than 40%, but even of those who do, they're not satisfied. So the planning is clearly problematic here. Then what happens to leaders after they've come into their new position as the leader of the organization? In other words, you pass on the mantle to the next generation of leaders. What happens is generally about 40% will survive 18 months. Now that's shocking. You might think, wow, um, couldn't that be better? Shouldn't that be better? Uh, perhaps uh, on average, a CEO's tenure is somewhere around six or seven years. Uh, the current data we have indicates that when you go much longer than that, the effectiveness of the CEO and the leadership team really begins to wane. In fact, the data seems to suggest that once you hit about five years, it really begins to wane. So um, 
it, the, the best leaders will will uh, best leadership teams will last about five years. It's interesting though that a large percentage of these leaders that are installed don't even last that long. They last a year and a half or less. And then look at family organizations. The transfer from the first to second generation. How well? How successful is that? In other words, does it really happen well enough for the organization to continue to grow and to develop and do what it was originally? Uh, envisioned to do, it's about a 30% success rate. Then the transition from second to third generation drops roughly in half, and then the transition from third to fourth drops in half again. So you can see it it dwindles very quickly. Now, next in the next session, I'm going to show you and talk to you about one company that defied the data and um, how they did it and why they did it, and you're going to discover biblical principles were the key to that. But for now, you just need to understand that generational transfer is very, very difficult. Now, the question is, why? Why is it difficult? Well, let's just take a look at one example here. Uh, this, this is someone you probably know, Jack Welch. He was the CEO of GE for probably about 20 years. So back in the 80s through the 90s, his successor took over in the early part of, the, of this current century. And here's what he had to say in his own book. Uh, he said, making the pick, that is of his successor, was not only the most important decision of my career, it was the most difficult and agonizing one I ever had to make. So that was his perspective. The process he engaged in took seven years from 1994 to 2001. And why was it so difficult? Number one is it's so critical. And number two, because of pride. Pride really is what gets in the way. And consistently, this is what the pundits have discovered as they have tried to address this issue of generational transfer and how to try to do it smoothly. Um, I, I don't know if there are very many examples of it being done smoothly, but it can be done smoother many times than it actually happens. One of the problems uh, that Sidney Finkelstein, the Harvard, excuse me, the um, Dartmouth business professor discovered as he explored why smart executives fail was the very thing we've just mentioned here that Jack Welch saw, and that is pride. Finkelstein is a, apparently a Jewish man, but he does not appear to be an Orthodox Jew. And in his book on why smart executives fail, which is a fairly thick book, I don't know how many words it is, but it's not a small book. Uh, there are many, many words in it, many, many case studies. The, the book can be synthesized down to one thing, Proverbs 16, 18. He actually quotes this, but he does not give scripture credit. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. He quotes that, that phrase. He doesn't tell you where he gets it, but that's it right there. That's what he discovered. And here's some examples of the manifestations of pride in senior leadership. Number one, flawed executive mindsets that throw off at companies' perception of reality. Number two, delusional attitudes that keep this inaccurate reality in place. Number three, breakdowns in communication systems developed to handle potentially urgent information. And finally, leadership qualities that keep a company's executives from correcting their course. All of these are symptoms of pride, arrogance, thinking that the leaders know better, thinking that the leaders can figure this out by themselves, functioning independently, functioning based on limited information, and many times very flawed information. Now, why is this? Well, biblically, we know why. Uh, we understand that sin has not been fully eradicated. Sin, which came about with Adam and Eve, has infected the human race and ultimately will be dealt with in the final analysis at the final judgment. And all sin will be eradicated. Death will be eradicated. But those who are not in Christ will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Those who are in Christ will join Christ on the new creation, in the new creation, new heavens and a new earth. But in the meantime, we are living in this time before that final judgment, and we're living downstream of the fall of Adam and Eve. And the Old Testament gave us a really good glimpse at the depth of human depravity and should have told us right up front 
it was a big problem in mankind ever being able to do things aligned with God. And that problem was man did not have the potency in and of himself without divine empowerment to be able to obey God and to be able to serve God. So Adam and Eve brought this on us. We are their heirs. Every human being is a descendant of Adam and Eve. So every human being is part of the human race. There's one race. That's the human race. There are multiple ethnicities in the human race. We each have an ethnicity. And the ethnicities are largely traced back to the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So there are basically three ethnicities and a lot of sub-ethnicities under those three. But all of us contain the same or, or possess the same disease, and that is sin. And our focus on ourselves, our narcissistic, humanistic, you know, focus on reality, and when you live that way, you will be living in pride. So I've got this little tool here that helps me think about what, how this plays out. You can see that I'm contrasting uh, from left to right, contrasting the ways of man versus the ways of God, and vertically, I'm contrasting the will of God versus the will of man. So Adam and Eve functioned uh, basically in their own will and choosing to do their own ways, and what they were trying to say to God was, we can run this universe without you. We don't need you. So that's a very arrogant state. That arrogance has been passed on to us. So we desire to do the same thing, to try to run things without God. Now, there's some variants from, from this. For example, we can have the variant seen in the Tower of Babel, which is man trying to do their will, but using God's ways. The only way you're going to build anything God's universe is you have to use God's ways. Remember, God's principles are what rule. There aren't principles that exist outside of God that will work. Only God's principles work. So if you want to build something, you need to know God's pattern for building. And so they used God's principles for how to build, how to organize, how to work as teams, how to be under authority, how to plan, how to find the right location and find the right tools and materials. All of these things are the way God defined construction to work. So they use those ways of God to try to execute their will, which was all about self-glory. So one of the indicators of pride is a seeking of self-glory. I would say this is probably what most everyone does. In fact, my default in analyzing organizations of any type anywhere in the world is to assume it's a Tower of Babel, which means it's being built by the leaders to self-glorify until if there's evidence to, to believe otherwise. In other words, the only way I would believe otherwise I have to see evidence of humility, submission, and teachability where they're seeking not their will, but God's will using God's ways. So this, I think, is the default model. Now, there's another model that, that can, can, you can use and is used. And it's still a model that's in rebellion against God. And that's the model of seeking the will of God, but trying to do it according to the ways of man. And one of the greatest examples of this in scripture is, is in 2 Samuel 6, when you may recall that the ark of God had been captured by the Philistines, and they had it for less than a year. And it, it did not go well for them, and they, they didn't know why. And they just thought, we need to get rid of this ark. And so they decided to put a little, a little test they decided they would uh, get, get oxen that had never been um, in a, any kind of yoke. So they were untrained oxen. They built a brand new cart. Uh, they put the ark on the cart and they put some offerings, some gold offerings, try to, to appease the gods. You know, that was how they thought about them as they had a pagan view of God. So, and they, they thought, you know, if this ox who were totally untrained go straight back to Israel and don't veer to the left or right. Don't try to go back, you know, to where their animals or their, their calves are or go back what, what's familiar, but they go straight to Israel. We know this, this is the God of the heaven that has been tormenting us for these months that I've had, we've had this ark. Well, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. The, uh, <clears throat> the, the oxen took the ark straight back, didn't veer to the left or right, they had not been trained to do that. They just did it. And of course, it, it winds up in being in Israel for a period of about 20 years. And then David figures out, he becomes king. 
um, he figures out, you know, the ark needs to be in Jerusalem. So he sends a team down there to get it, and they decide to try to move it just like the pagans had. The pagans had built that new cart and put it on the cart. And you know from the Old Testament law, there are specific rules for how the ark would be moved. Moved by priests using poles, and the poles would be carried, they would carry the ark on their shoulders. Well, um, it doesn't should not surprise us to see that God did not look kindly upon Israel's disobedience to his rules, and he struck one of the men involved in this, this scene down. Now, David got mad. Uh, David was having his own praise and worship experience, dancing before the Lord when this man was struck down, and that David went, went home and pouted, and he left the ark where it was, and the ark blessed the people around him. And about a few months later, David realizes, well, things are going well. And I guess someone came in and told him, I don't know exactly how he found this out, but he realized that, you know, we didn't move the ark properly. We need to go back and do it according to the scripture. And so when they did that, they were able to successfully move it to Jerusalem, which is what they should have done. So that's an example of trying to do the will of God, do it God, God ordained that it should be in Jerusalem, but he has ways that it's to be transported and they were trying to do their own ways. And they were, the ways they chose were the ways of the world. So it's real easy to get into that. And you might say, well, there may be a lot of organizations that claim to be local churches that do this kind of thing, but anybody can do this. But still, I think the most common error that, that is today is building towers of Babel. It is so easy to want to do our will and we use God's ways to build our will. Of course, the only proper way to build is to use God's will done God's ways. And the ark is a great example of this. Noah, who was a farmer, had no knowledge or understanding about how to build an ark, and it didn't matter because God told him, explained it to him the whole way. And he had a very successful project, a hundred year project, by the way. Sometimes God takes time to build things, and that doesn't seem to bother him. It seems to bother us. So this is an example of how pride really gets in the way, and the only way to be humble before God is his will done his ways. That's humble. Everything else is some form of pride manifesting, and that is continually a problem. Even when you have authority, like King David was, he was ordained of God, he was installed by God, and yet he didn't follow the ways of God in this particular case, and he suffered the consequences. So we have to learn. It's not enough to do the will of God. It's not enough to do the ways of God. You have to do both. You don't do both, then you're going to have pride leading and ministering to you, causing you great difficulty. So this, uh, this realization is really not new. Uh, it's actually pretty easy to see. Um, many men have recognized this, that the enemy of generational transfer is pride. The example of Hezekiah, great example. Hezekiah was arguably the greatest king since David, and he was very single generational in his thinking. When he was judged because of his sin, uh, he pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord granted him um, that the judgment would not be carried out in his lifetime. It would be carried out during his children's lifetime. And he rejoiced in that because he thought, then I won't be here. I won't have to worry about it. That was a very selfish, self-centered response. That's pride. George Barna, in his research, he's discovered the same things. Often, this is a quote from him, often the group or the organizational leadership starts to feel invincible that is proud and thus launches out on too many directions to be effective. That's one of the things he discovered in researching organizational behavior and the patterns of organization development is that the leadership begins to get feel invincible, which is another sign of pride. But there's also unsaved men. That, at least I, I believe they're not, not regenerate people. That is Jim Collins and Dr. Sidney Finkelstein, and we've already mentioned him. And both of these men see the same thing that, that George Barna does. George Barna is, I think, a strong Christian. So it's interesting to see whether you're pagan or not, whether you're Christian or not, uh, you can see this truth. So Collins says hubris can lead to making brash commitments for more and more and more. 
And then one day, just when you've elevated your expectations too far, you fall hard. And Finkelstein said this, the classic Greek tragedies often involved a deep-seated defect in the protagonist that led to his eventual downfall. downfall. And that's indeed what happens because pride does precede the fall. And God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So this is, a, I think, a well-understood reality that we largely ignore today. We just disregard it. At least in my experience working with organizations over the last 35 years, I see organization after organization that fails to face this reality. They just presume that they can just go do whatever they want to do and it'll be okay. In fact, some of them expect God to bless it because they tithe or they attend church or they volunteer time or go on mission trips or things like this. They think in some way or other that buys them a pass and they can just do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. Well, I want to give you a couple of models of organizational development. These are models of how organizations start, grow, uh, and then wind up in difficulties. So they're, they're different models, but they're very similar. So I'm going to give them to you separately and then put them together. First one is uh, George Barnes' model. And to understand his model, you need to understand basic uh, principle, and that is his four models of leadership. Uh, if you've been through strategic life alignment training, you know about these uh, models of leadership. Uh, the first leader is a directional leader. This is a visionary. They see things. They see big picture, long-term things. You, organizations have to have that. The next thing is the team builder. You have to have someone that, that makes everyone on the team feel good about being on the team. So they're the, they're the feel-good people. They're the, the ones that everybody loves and wants to be around. Generally, there's a lot of fun associated with them, but mostly there's just a lot of acceptance and, and, and patience and kindness and graciousness, that kind of thing. So you need team builders. The next thing is you need operational leaders. Operational leaders are leaders who, who focused on getting things done. And they don't necessarily go get into speed, but they're into systems and processes, repetition, uh, you know, doing what many people would be bored with. They love it. They love just doing the routine things over and over again. And then finally, you have the C, which is the strategist. And the strategist is the person that's asking the hard questions. They're looking at the direction. They're saying, are we on course? Are we doing what we should be doing? Are we doing it as fast as we should be doing? You know, are we doing this completely, as thoroughly, as excellently? They're asking all those hard questions that nobody wants to deal with. It's, they're not fun. And many times they're, they're like a wrecking ball in the midst of the organization. So they mess up systems and processes, but they're, they're questions that must be asked. Now you see, I've associated these uh, four leadership styles with DISC, and that's the DISC model of personality behaviors. I think it's a pretty good correlation. That's why I use it this way. So you need the D, someone who's a dominant D as a directional person, a dominant I as a team builder, a dominant S as an operational leader, and a dominant C as a strategic leader. So that you need to understand that basic model of the types of leaders you need. Now let's take a look at his life cycle model here. He calls this a life cycle of organizations. There are basically uh, six components to this. Okay, you start out here on the left at the bottom, you see conception. There's somebody has an idea, somebody has vision, somebody can see something that could happen that would be really good, that would be profitable. So that's conception. And then you have infancy. Infancy is early stage when you're just getting going and just getting started and beginning to see some traction. You're beginning, your ideas beginning to work. And then once it gets, it's worked. And you say, okay, this will really will work. We're persuaded it'll work. You're ready to expand. So now you move into expansion mode. And as you expand, you grow and you grow and you grow. And you, you have to begin to put systems and processes in place to kind of manage everything that's happening. And then you reach what's called balance. And a balance is a wonderful place. Things are going well, they're predictable, they're reproducible, uh, things are orderly, and things, things are functioning very, very nicely. 
But if you stay there long enough, eventually you'll begin to get stagnant. And stagnation kicks in when you get like lackadaisical, you become overly confident, you presume, you lose sight of where things are going, you're missing the clues of all around you. And if you do that long enough, eventually you move into disability and death. So that's the that's the uh, the life cycle or organizations. Now he stresses uh, in Barna's research, he stresses that you know that there's not specific time frames here. Some of these things can actually overlap, and you don't have to go through all phases. Uh, some organizations might might jump into stagnation uh, from expansion. They may skip the balance phase and go straight into stagnation, or some may go from expansion into sudden death that can happen too so there's this is not a rigid model this is a rough model to help help you think through where an organization might be now at the bottom i've put his uh his leadership styles and what i'm trying to show you is if you just correspond with each phase you look down and straight down like concept and infancy and you see directional and strategic leaders they're the dominant leadership styles and that phase. And then you see as you move into expansion, the team builders begin to play a part, okay? And finally, when you move into balance, actually the operational leaders come in and all four are, are balancing each other nicely. Then as you move into stagnation, what's happened is your directional leaders and your strategic leaders, which are disruptive to order, they have, they've been pushed aside, ignored, or maybe eliminated. And so it's the company's being run by basically accountants and financial people instead of by really sound technical visionaries and good strategic thinkers. So that's when it begins to really stagnate. And if you don't do something to change it, you'll eventually just drive it in the ground because operational leaders can never develop the vision, will never ask the hard questions. And the team builders, they just want everybody to feel good. So you, you've eliminated in the last, the stagnation phase, some way you've either physically eliminated or basically some way or another, not, not listening to your visionaries and not listening to your strategists. So that's gonna put you on a bad road. And generally what'll happen if you don't listen to the, directional and strategic people, they will leave. And you'll just wind up with basically operational people managing the business and it'll just go into the ground. Now, the way that Barna says you can avoid this is basically by, uh, by reasserting or basically trying to go back to an earlier phase in the, in the cycle. If you can go back to the expansion phase, for example, and maybe with fresh vision, fresh ideas, you know, new strategy, you might be able to move back to that. It's hard. There have been some that have done it, but not a lot. Generally, once you hit balance and you're not able to keep it balanced, um, most likely you're going to get onto the road of stagnation and disability. And this is in part why generally most organizations don't last beyond the founders. Once the founders are gone, the visionary is usually gone, and many times the strategic leaders are not listened to, and so you begin to decline. Now, obviously there are exceptions, but generally this is a, a pretty good pattern to look at to help us understand things. I've also got a chart here, uh, which uh, helps you understand the various components. Uh, you can see that across the top, uh, there's the conception phase, the infancy phase, the expansion phase, the balance, stagnation, disability. And then down the left are various traits that you should look at and say, okay, like the vision. Uh, in the conception phase, it's dreams. It's, you're just dreaming. Uh, when you move into infancy, you're actually seeing some of the dreams happen. You don't know if it's going to be viable, but you see them happening. See, if we can get this going where it's actually viable and produces a profit. And expansion phase is when you've seen that it does produce for profit, we can build on it. And so you begin to grow. And as you grow and develop, eventually you, you realize we got to put order to all of this. And as you do, hopefully you're moving toward the balance phase. The balance is where you want to go. That's why it's in green here. That's where you want to go, where you want to stay. But it's hard to stay there. 
It doesn't just automatically happen. You have to really recognize what's going on and do things that support the, the balance. And balance is when all four leadership styles count. Everyone, their voice counts. There's good tension. There's good discussion, good debate. There's wise decisions being made. If you need to go back and uh, have a new idea, a new strategy, you can go back to one of the earlier stages and do that. But if you can't do that, if you can never go back and reinvigorate your company, your organization, you're probably going to go into stagnation and then eventually move toward disability and death. So that's how that works. You can see uh, there's a risk category here. The risk here for the conception stage is unreal dreams. The emphasis stage is validating dreams. That's a risk. You know, can you validate the dreams? The expansion stage is you could be losing control because you're you're expanding rapidly and, and you haven't taken the time to, to really put the money and the time into the systems and processes so you can overplay your success. You can, you can be focused on short-term vision and not be thinking out far enough to what you really need in the future. The balance phase, really, this is where pride really becomes big. Uh, if you don't stay humble here and recognize the risk that you're running to move into stagnation, uh, yeah, that'll, that'll sneak up on you and you'll wonder what in the world happened. And then once you get in the stagnation phase, you've got to know you, you're, you've lost your passion, you need vision, you need some new strategy, you need somebody that can help you think it through, and you can't just jump at something. You've got to find something really sound that fits what the organization can do. And if you don't do that, you're going to wind up in disability. No vision, paranoia, fear, mistrust, it, it's over. It's just a matter of it working out. So these are examples of how to understand the model. So I, I commend that to you. Hopefully you'll spend some time looking at that. Now what I want to do is real quickly take a look at what Jim Collins has to say in his model. He calls it um, uh, basically, he has a different name for it, uh, phases of decline. So he's not real positive about his <laughs> the way, he, way he phrases it. And he only has five. He doesn't have six components. So I've combined, to compare it with Barna's model, I've combined Barna's first two components, conception and infancy, and compared that to his first component, which is hubris born of success. But it's very similar, and you see I've got a similar kind of model. The idea here is that you start out and you moving towards success. As you go further up the curve, you're being successful. As you begin to decline, you're not being as successful, and eventually you're going into death. So that's what the curve is trying to, to, to just qualitatively show you. It's not a quantitative thing. And again, the phases are not definable in time. They will vary from organization to organization. Sometimes they will overlap. And the same kind of thing is you want to try to, when you're over here toward the end, on, down, uh, down slope on the curve, you want to try to get back over to the upslope. So that's, uh, that's the challenge. If you understand the, the way organizations arise and how they fade, which is what these two models do for you, then that'll help you know, number one, where you are and know what you need to do to try to reinvigorate the organization and spare it from, you know, total annihilation. So basically his model is the first phase is hubris born of success. That is all about pride and arrogance. And uh, to some degree, he's saying that can, a little pride is helpful, he thinks, but I'm not so sure about that. But uh, that's what gets you going. Hopefully, we start working out of a sense of calling and not trying to have to self-motivate ourselves with pride. I'd rather work out of calling what I believe God has called me to do. As you begin to grow and you begin to see, okay, this vision can begin to happen, now you begin to press uh, undisciplined pursuit of more. And as you press, many times you outrun your blockers, as Dennis would say. You don't really have the systems and processes in place, the personnel in place, to be able to support the growth that you're pushing for. Uh, you may be able to recover from that and be able to get to a, a pretty good place. And once you get to a pretty good place at kind of at the top of the curve, you get arrogant again. You kind of deny the risk and peril. You, get, you coast. You rest on your laurels. You, you continue to think you're, you're invincible and 
next thing you know is things are not going well and you don't know exactly why they're not going well but the stagnation is in what he calls grasping for salvation you're looking for a savior somewhat something to save us some idea some strategy some person or a combination thereof to come in and reinvigorate the company and if that doesn't happen then you wind up in capitulation to irrelevance and death. So it's effectively the same model. They both have their own databases. Uh, Collins looks mainly at, at public companies, some private companies, and Barna looked at all kinds of organizations. He's a Christian, so he's trying to pay attention to what happens in churches as well. I don't think Collins cares about what happens in churches. Now, I think what's interesting about Collins's model uh, is the phase two, what he calls the undisciplined pursuit of more, what Barna calls the expansion phase. That's where you've, the, the idea has proven itself enough to where you can see this is a profitable, this is, this is a viable kind of idea. I call this critical mass. Critical mass is when you have, it's imagery from nuclear physics, you have to have a certain level of interactions um, to have critical mass. And once you have it, it's self-sustaining. You don't have to put things into it. It can, it can continue to grow on its own. So that's kind of what this expansion phase is. It's when you get to the place where you've got enough critical mass, enough business, enough cash flow, enough people that know what they're doing to where you can begin to build on that. So when you're in that phase, you're susceptible to pride. And in fact, every phase you're susceptible to pride, but, but for Collins, he thinks this second phase is probably the most critical. And so he has some thoughts about what that looks like. So I wanna just give you his thoughts, uh, signs of organizational pride. Number one, uh, when you get to this phase, you can have unsustainable quest for growth, confusing big with great. So he's playing off some of his own prior work there. Um, this unsustainable quest for growth, this is really about, you know, you, you never have enough. You just want more, 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 more. Okay. The second one is undisciplined, discontinuous steps. In other words, you're not counting the cost. You're just jumping and doing things because you can do them, not because you should do them. The next, declining proportion of right people in the key seats. I think, I think every, all of the pundits seem to recognize there's such a thing as right people. None of them really know how to define that very well, except Christians. We know how to define right people. We know the right people are the people that God has called to be in the seat they're in. They, the, those people have developed the character to be in that seat. They have the skill and ability that they've developed to do it, and they've been commissioned to do it. That's the C4 principle. We know that's the right way to qualify people. Sadly, the, the non-Christian pundits don't have that principle. Maybe at some point they'll steal it uh, and use it, and that would, that would help them. They, they would be better because anytime you steal truth and you apply it and you apply it well, you, you, you have some level of success. So basically, Collins is big on this getting the right people in the right seats, and he recognizes it's huge if you don't do it. He talks about... Um, Packer's Law. Packer's Law is very interesting. Um, this was uh, uh, Pat Hewitt and Packard. You may, may recall that famous name, HP. Uh, Dave Packard was, uh, seemed to be the more prominent um, of the managers, the two of them. I think maybe Bill Hewlett was more technical and Dave was more business. Perhaps that's what it was. I'm not totally sure about that. But Packard came up with an interesting principle. He called it Packer's Law. And the Packer's Law says companies can't grow faster than the ability for people and systems to manage that growth. It's the same thing that Collins is saying. You have to have the right people. If you don't have the right people, you can't grow. Now, Christians know that growth is determined by the Holy Spirit. And God funds his will. Those are principles that we understand. So if God is calling an organization to grow, there will be a way to grow. There will be the right resources, including the right people. So Christians know wisdom is you don't grow beyond the resources God has given to you. Now, the pagans don't understand that because they don't think about aligning with God. But Christians understand this. And Dave Packard, on some level, I think he understood this. I never, I've never found where he, he was a Christian. I don't know if that's true or not, but he seemed to be sensitive to principles that we would find very favorable. 
For example, there was one case here where he was meeting with a bunch of CEOs, and um, he, uh, I mentioned that earlier in this seminar, where he was disagreeing with every CEO in the room, and he was the junior CEO in the room because they were all saying business is about satisfying the shareholders. And he said, no, it's not. It's not about that. It's much bigger than that. And he, he was, you could tell he was trying to think much more biblically. I don't know if he understood he was or not, but he was. And he recognized that money wasn't the real objective. Money was a byproduct of doing the right things. And of course, when you say the word right, there's only one person who can define right, and that's God. So if you don't have the Holy, Holy Spirit, you don't have the scripture at the core of your management philosophy, you will never be able to discern right well. You might fumble and stumble on some things, but you will never do it really, really well. Next thing is what happens when organizations get in this phase two is they, they basically begin to erode their cash flows and, and the discipline begins to go. Bureaucracy perverts discipline because as you begin to put systems and processes in place, that, that interferes with discipline sometimes. Sometimes it brings discipline, but sometimes it, it's counterproductive. And then the problematic succession of power. Again, the pundits are seeing the same problem that we started out talking about in this particular session. You know, Jack Welch saw it. Um, I could have brought out other people, for example, Chick-fil-A and in their, in, in their efforts, you know, Truett Cathy, in his efforts to pass on, it's been really hard to pass on the, the business to the next generation. Now, they've had some success, probably better than most, but it's still been hard. Even the best people struggle with this. And finally, you've got to put aside personal interest. If you don't put aside personal interest, then you will wind up torpedoing the organization some way, somehow. So these are seven traits that manifest pride traits that show up particularly in phase two, but they can show up in other phases as well. Now, what I've got here is just a, a comparison, uh, looking at um, both of these two models side by side, and then looking at King Saul in 1 Samuel, and just seeing how he walked through these cycles to his own demise. And you can see the traits that were mentioned here, conception, infancy, hubris traits. That you start out, Saul is a very insecure king, doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know how he became king. He's a, he's a Benjaminite. You know, it's Judah supposed to be the king, not the Benjaminites, and he wound up being king. So, you know, he doesn't know what to think about this. He doesn't know if this is going to work. And then he begins to have some success, so he expands. Uh, he has some victories, and he's got the people praising him, and it begins to go to his head. And so by the time he gets to balance, he's not thinking real well because he's given a test. First Samuel 15, he's told to go kill all the Malachites. It's judgment on the Malachites for resisting the people of God and not spare any of them. Well, he just decides, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to kill the bad stuff and keep the good stuff. So he didn't kill the king, and he kept the best of the animals. And um, so he thinks he's fat, dumb, and happy. And then, of course, he's called to account. And that's when he moves into the stag stagnation phase because he realizes pretty quickly that, uh-oh, uh I made a big mistake. And so he's grasping for salvation, looking for help, and it's too late because the Lord has rejected him. And finally, um, it winds up in his own death and the end, end of his line over as king over the people of God. And so now we have David, a new king. He is of the tribe of Judah, and he will take over for Saul. So that's, it's an interesting picture to look at. If you can spend some time in those texts that I mentioned there, you think you'll enjoy seeing how these models actually played out in the case of King Saul. Now, I want to give you one more example here. This is the example of uh, Ann Wang um, and Mike Rutgers. Some of you may have heard this example before. This is uh, one of my favorite examples of hubris and the opposite, which was great success. So I have two men, two worldviews. One worldview is going to be highly toxic and failure. The other one will be highly successful. 
So Ant Wang was an interesting uh, man. He came from China back in the mid 40s. Uh, came here and uh, went to intending to go to work and wound up going to school and got a doctorate in uh, physics and applied physics. He worked in the early days of the electronic revolution, helped develop the magnetic core um, memory that was early on how they, they stored data in the magnetic core memory. That was before solid state came in. This was you know, when they had big components and a computer was a big machine. Now, now computers are really small because of, we have solid state uh, electronics and we have, we've, we've gone on the micro level. In fact, we're getting on the atomic level in terms of what we can do with our electronics. So he started out there and he, he met the people at IBM in the 50s and uh, had a, a pretty poor experience with them, but they eventually bought his, uh, his patent to the magnetic pulse memory processor and that became a big deal for them. He was always bitter about what the, how the negotiations went and how he was treated. So he was never happy with that. He spent the rest of his career trying to out, out maneuver IBM any way he could. So he did a lot of different things and he was always driven by this, this revenge, wanting revenge. And he was a workaholic as many of these people are. He had um, two sons and a daughter. He wanted them in the business, but he didn't really prepare them. He didn't really spend time discipling them, grooming them. He was just pushing them. And, and in, in the end, that lack of preparation was, was really toxic uh, for the company. He died in the early 90s. He had cancer. Uh, shortly after he died, the company went bankrupt. The company, by the time he got ill, was already going down. Uh, it had already got into the desperate phrase and it was going down. And the problem was with him was, was just the sin of his character. That was just overwhelming pride. He had arrogance, he had hatred and disrespect for IBM and that led to disaster in the end. And never, never prepared anyone, any of his sons to really be able to take over and run the business. Now Mike, Ruck, Mike Rutgers is a bit different uh, he's not an organizational leader in the sense of a founder. He was hired to come in and he head up the sales and marketing effort for EMC in the late 80s. Uh, when he got there, he didn't really know that much about EMC, but he discovered pretty quickly that the company was in trouble and he, he needed to um, do some drastic things. He, uh, he went around and because the company sold big, uh, big computers that were used for data processing, data storage, et cetera, like that. And generally they sold them to big companies. So he didn't have a lot of customers. Each customer had a big machine. So he went around and visited, you know, his major customers, getting to know them, introducing himself, finding out what the problems are. And he discovered very quickly that all of his customers were really angry. They were very angry and very dissatisfied. And so as he researched this, he discovered that the company had a major, major flaw in their product. And it was, it was so bad that it was like the company is about to go under if we don't act quickly. So he got very humble. And many times that's what it takes to get humble is we have to get under stress. So he got very humble. And as he did, he decided, well, what we need to do is we need to go to our customers hand in hand and we need to ask them to forgive us and give them an option that is credible. So he went to the CEO of the company and said, here's what I propose to do. I propose we go to each customer and we make it make an offer to them. We admit our sin, we admit our problem, tell them we've got it, we've got it fixed. We can do one of two things for you. We'll either give you a new machine, no extra cost to you, or we will pay for you to, to have an IBM machine. And many of the customers took the IBM machine, but many of them didn't. Many of them were very impressed at how EMC was approaching this, owning, owning the problem. They weren't trying to in any way rationalize it, dismiss it, cover it up. They owned it. And so many did accept, you know, the offer to, to get a new machine. As soon as uh, that was done, they were able to, to determine, okay, we think we, we can go forward. We have enough customers that believe in us, that trust us, that have forgiven us, that we can go forward. He said, the next thing is we have to absolutely service them with excellence. Uh, 
So they, they turned the company uh, upside down in the sense that all the silos were annihilated. Every person became part of customer service. It did not matter what your role was. You could be chief engineer, you're part of customer service. You could be the, the CEO, the CFO, you know, any, C, any CC, any manager, any leader, everybody was in customer service. When a customer calls, there's no passing them on. Whoever got the call owned, owned the problem. And it didn't matter if the problem was an EMC problem. The, when a customer called with a problem, EMC would own it. It didn't matter what it took until it was solved. So an example of this is one time uh, EMC got a call from a customer about what their machine and uh, as they began to investigate it, they discovered there was nothing wrong with the machine. What was wrong was some software that was part that was you know, interfacing with the machine. So they called the software company and said, hey, your software, you know, needs to be adjusted to work on this machine. We, we told you all this before, but you didn't make the changes. You need to make those changes. And they never told, EMC never told the customer about that conversation. And so all the customer knew is EMC solved the problem. They had no idea how they solved the problem. And that's what they did consistently. There was another example where they had a, set up a system where they were monitoring all of their, their equipment in their, all the customer sites. They got alert one day that a component on a particular machine was about to fail. So they dispatched a serviceman. He goes out to the bank, knocks on the door of the bank, and they open the door and they, and they say, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we got an alert that your system is about to fail. And I've come with the component to replace it so it doesn't fail. They were blown away. They had never had anyone proactively show up to prevent a failure. So that's the kind of thing they did. That was stunning, stunning customer service. But that's what enabled EMC to survive and go forward. So this was basically a great contrast in worldviews, a worldview that's aligned with scripture and Mike Rutgers and a worldview and wanting that's aligned with the world. So I've got a little chart here that uh, will help you look at this. And I've just got a number of traits here. I think about 10 traits that you can see. And Wang was a single generational leader. He was not a multi-generational leader. Mike Rutgers was trying to build a big or an organization that would last, that would endure, that would stay in the balanced phase for a long time. And, and Wang was not interested. He was just, you know, wanted to go, 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 make a lot of money and didn't worry about the future. So you can see they're very different worldviews. So just go down some of these traits, like the style. Wang's style was autocratic. He was a dictator. Mike Rutger was a servant, fanatical customer service, power source. And Wang was centralized. He had to control everything, make all the major decisions. What you had in, in the EMC is diversified. You know, all the major leaders were decision makers and could make things happen. The agenda. Agenda for Ann Wang was always self-serving. Personal agenda, beat IBM, annihilate IBM, kill IBM. He had that resentment, that anger boiling up in here all the time toward IBM. Rutgers, it was all about whatever makes serves the customer the best. We're always thinking about the good of the whole. It's not about us. It's about them. Authority, they, basically Ann Wang, he, he didn't submit to anybody. He expected everybody to submit to him. And what you have here with, with EMC was very a lot of interdependence, people working together, collaborating, nobody looking to escape responsibility, nobody looking to blame anybody. Everybody tried to solve the problem. They were problem solvers. They were not excuse makers. The people, the people there in the single generational organization are repressed. They're held back. They can't really be fully released in EMC they didn't mind human human errors. They knew human errors were going to happen. They weren't encouraging errors, but when you made a mistake, learn from it. Let's get better. Let's always grow. You don't get annihilated for making a mistake. And then mistakes. Held grudges. He was intolerant of mistakes. EMC, they looked at mistakes as opportunities to grow. Purpose. EMC was always about 
no self-glory, whereas Wang was always about self-glory. Attitude, proud, arrogant attitude at, uh, at Wang Labs, but at EMC was humble, responsible, teachable, they built trust. The strategy was short-term with Ann Wang, long-term with EMC, and success was defined by money by Ann Wang, but for EMC, it was defined by helping others succeed. So totally different worldviews, and the only way you're gonna engage in generational transfer well is you've got to become a mature servant leader. That's the only way you're gonna be humble enough where pride will not torpedo you and you'll be able to learn to do things according to the will and the ways of God, which is the only way to be successful. So I've got a, an exercise here. This is built off the, the prior chart. It's the same traits and I encourage you to do this. This is a, an analog scale from zero to 10. Zero is the autocratic leader, the single generational leader, and 10 is the servant leader. And you can tell that it just it's just exactly what I gave you in the prior chart. And just rate yourself in, in whatever context that you're in, whatever organization you're part of, or you can rate someone else and, and use this zero to 10 scale. It's since there are 10 traits, you add it up and it's automatically normalized to 100. Also, I've got what's called the pride probe. And the pride probe is, again, another analog scale. And it's looking at the seven features that, <clears throat> that Jim Collins made note of that, he was, that were manifestations of pride, particularly in the second phase of, of his model. But they, they could show up in any phase. So that's another model here to look at to try to discern how much pride is active in me how much pride is active in my organization as I look at it and try to think about how the organizations function against these seven traits. And so that helps you just detect pride and how pride could be interfering with you. Well, let me uh, just go ahead and, and um, go through our understanding of the gospel or the good news. I've been doing that after each time, trying to walk you through these traits. We've already been through the traits on this particular slide, and now we're on this uh, second slide. And I just want to do four more traits tonight very quickly. First, I want to talk about education, how education is looked at from the standpoint of the left-hand column, which is the gospel of salvation or, or dualism, and versus the right-hand column, which is the gospel of the kingdom of God or holism. So education to the dualist is based on a secular worldview. They believe that secular education exists. But from a Christian worldview, since God is the source of everything, there's no such thing as secular anything. Secular is just a ruse, it's a lie, it's deception. You cannot escape the reality that God made everything. He made education. So he has a will and ways for education. So we have to approach that from a holistic Christian worldview. The next is the mission of the Ecclesia. The mission of, of the Ecclesia, in the case of the dualist, is missions. They think everything's about missions, about going around the world and trying to get people to make a profession of faith. That's, that's what drives the mission efforts of today. Whereas you look at a, a holistic worldview, a, a, a gospel of the kingdom of God, you have a recognition that God is the only one that can regenerate anyone. We can't regenerate anyone. We can't save anyone. We can't make anybody accept Christ. What we do is what Matthew 7 tells us to do. We do what God has created and called us to do and do it well to his glory and in his timing. And guess what? God uses that to draw people to himself at his sovereign pleasure. And we have to be content that God has chosen to only draw a remnant. He's not going to draw large masses. And that just really gives a lot of people heartburn. They, they, they don't like that. I said, well, you've got to deal with scripture. And they try to appeal to places where thousands of people came to Christ, like in Acts 2. That's one example of where that happens. Uh, you, you've got to look at the context and you've got to pay attention to what was going on there. Uh, that was a very unique context. The people that were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost were all biblically literate people, highly committed to their faith. They knew the Old Testament scripture well, and once they were told that Jesus is Lord in Christ, that unlocked the Old Testament and all of the prophecies, the typology, 
all the understanding of the Old Testament that they didn't have before because they didn't know he was Lord in Christ. So when you unlock that, well, it's pretty easy for people to connect the dots fairly quickly and recognize, okay, that's what's going on. Today, we have largely biblically illiterate people, people that don't know scripture. So you can tell them Jesus is Lord in Christ and that doesn't mean anything to them because they, they don't know the scripture. They have no commitment to the word of God. So when you consider that, you realize, okay, the, the masses that seem to come on that day, that may not be normative. That may be more of an exceptional thing. If you happen to have a group that's highly biblically literate, then perhaps you can have that kind of thing. But in my experience, most local ecclesias don't have highly biblically literate people. So it takes a lot more time. They have to learn the Bible. And that way they, they can begin to understand it more over time. So Jesus is the one that says, narrow is the way that leads to life and few enter thereby and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many enter that. That's what he tells us in Matthew chapter seven. So we have to be very content that that is the way God has set it up. God is not running around wringing his hands, worried that we, we are not getting enough people saved. He's not thinking that way. He is restoring the uncontested rule of his son. That's what he's doing. And in the process, he's going to build an ecclesia, a people for himself, and he has chosen who's going to be in it and how many are going to be in it. And it's not our job to try to change that. Our job is to align with his purposes and his will, and we do that by obeying him. His will, done his ways, his timing for his glory. That's how we live. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit will use us at his sovereign pleasure to draw others to Christ, as many as he wishes or as few as he wishes. That's up to him. It's not up to us. So what do you got to get the mission of the Ecclesia is not about missions. It is about helping people grow and mature in Christ. We need to stop focusing on quantity and focus on quality. It isn't the noses that count. It's the depth of character that the people of God grow into that counts. So we need to get very clear on that. The next one is money. Uh, you see, when you're dualistic and you think Jesus is just Lord of some things, you eliminate money, economics, work, those kinds of things. Those are not the purview of God. That's kind of filthy lucre. So money for you now becomes something you can, you can redefine it. So it's real easy for us to define it as the measure of success. You make a bunch of money, your success is the presumption, notwithstanding Psalm 73, which tells us that you can have a bunch of money and be, be on the road to judgment. That's hardly success. So money needs to be seen biblically, holistically. Jesus is Lord of all, including economics, including work, including you know, management and leadership, including public policy, including education, everything. He's Lord of everything. And money is simply a tool to enable the people of God to do the will of God. And God does not need our money. He is the source of everything. He, he provides, he funds his will at his sovereign pleasure. Sometimes he may use you to do that, but he doesn't need anyone. He can take care of things without any human help, but he chooses at his sovereign pleasure to use us. And finally, uh, success in life. Uh, sadly, we have really bought, bought the, uh, or, or drinking the Kool-Aid, I guess is the imagery to use here. We're drinking the Kool-Aid of the culture, which says success is the American dream. You work as hard as you can, make as much money as fast as you can, so you can retire as soon as you can, so you can do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it, and nobody tells you what to do. That is the American dream. That's touted by all the major financial services company. It's, you hear it on the news media, you probably hear it from the pulpits because largely we have given in to the American dream as the measure of success. That's never the measure of success. The only measure of success is to obey God. Jesus said in John 17, four, what I think is the greatest definition of success. He said, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, that is powerful definition of success. That's a definition of success that, that works. It aligns with God. It is real. And it is the one Jesus gave us. 
So we need to know success in life is not about numbers. It's not about great memories. It's not about how big a house you've been in, how many you know things on your bucket list did you check off, how much money you have, what size portfolio you have, you know how many houses you have, how many cars you have. None of that matters. What matters is, did you serve the will of God and did you do it? That's all Jesus cared about. If anyone could have been rich and done whatever he wanted to do, Jesus could have. He didn't do that. He stayed humble, submitted and teachable before the Father, measured everything by what the will of the Father was in every circumstance. So this is how we have to begin to think. If we're going to be holistic, if we're truly going to be aligned with the gospel of the kingdom of God, because it's real easy to think like the gospel of salvation, the dualistic gospel of salvation, and buy into the false thinking of the American dream. So we'll continue. Next month, we'll do the last three there. And hopefully this has been helpful to you as we've walked through some of these distinctions between the common gospel of salvation and the gospel of the kingdom of God. May God give you grace to learn to live well in his universe. May he give you grace to be excellent at generational transfer, which means very humble and recognizing God is building and build with him. And when you build with him, then you'll build aligned with his will and his ways and his timing for his glory. That's the only way to build. May we have grace to do that in Jesus name. Amen.